Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. We are back, and guess who we have? Our weekly Friday Friday guest, uh, we're, I think he's just coming in from another meeting. Bob Nay will join us uh, in just a minute. And and the first question I'm going to ask him is about the New Hampshire primary, because it seems to me this is Nikki Haley's last stand. Uh, She is trying to be the the anti-Trump or the alternative to Trump uh, in a state like New Hampshire that is uh, filled with independents. Uh, is run by a Republican, a moderate Republican governor named Chris Sununu. Call him the, uh, oh, I don't know. I wouldn't call him Phil Scott Light. That would uh, that would be, I guess, an insult to uh, Governor Sununu. But I know they are friends and friendly. Um, but Sununu is much, much like uh, Phil Scott, uh, a moderate governor. Um, he doesn't have to deal with the Democratic legislature that Phil Scott does. The New Hampshire legislature is still still fairly friendly to a guy like uh, Sununu. But Sununu is a major supporter of Nikki Haley. Uh, he swore off uh, Trump some time ago, as did our governor, Phil Scott. So he's been campaigning all over the state with Nikki Haley. And their hope is that uh, Haley can come close to Trump in the New Hampshire primary and uh, sort of shake up the race. So as she heads to the primary in South Carolina uh, and other states, uh, Trump, with all of his uh, legal problems, uh, begins to uh, fade and weaken. Uh, I think that's a long shot, but we'll see what Bob Nay has to say to us. We had him on the line and then, uh, I think there was, uh, oh, he's probably in some foreign land somewhere trying to dial back in. Um, so that New Hampshire primary is uh, taking place on Tuesday. Uh, as we we talked about it earlier this week with Middlebury College professor of political science, Matt Dickinson. Uh, and it's, you know, the New Hampshire primary has has been the graveyard for a lot of people. Uh, including, and I, when I think of Nikki Haley and Donald Trump, I'm thinking a little bit about, let's go back, way back to 1968. I'm thinking a little bit about Lyndon Johnson uh, and Eugene McCarthy. And, I, you know, you've got to be over 60 to remember that. But, uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson was an incumbent president. He was uh, conducting a war in Vietnam. He was, uh, he had been elected by a huge landslide in 1964 over Barry Goldwater. And then uh, in 1968, uh, the the country was turning against the war, and Minnesota Senator Eugene McCarthy uh, ran uh, a quixotic campaign for president against uh, Lyndon Johnson. He enters the New Hampshire primary. Robert Kennedy had not yet gotten into the race. And McCarthy came... uh, History, the history uh, often gets confused. A lot of people think that McCarthy beat Johnson in the primary. He did not. 
he actually lost the primary, but came within, I think it was three or four percentage points. I don't have it in front of me. Uh, and and that uh, sent a massive signal to the American electorate that Johnson was politically flawed and politically vulnerable. And uh, shortly thereafter, uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, left the race, and that opened the race to McCarthy. Uh, Robert Kennedy got in the race. Hubert Humphrey got in the race. And uh, Now, do we have Bob Ney on the line? I think we do. Yes, we do not. Bob Ney. Yes, I'm here. Are... Uh-huh. Yes. Oh, oh, there he is. The great Bob Ney. There I am. Former... There he yes. is. Thank you for joining us, Bob. I was just giving our listeners the history lesson on the New Hampshire primary uh, and uh, Eugene, Eugene McCarthy challenging LBJ in McCarthy? 1968. And I'm wondering, does uh, Nikki Haley have a shot at uh, – at uh, denting the armor of Donald Trump in the New Hampshire primary. I think she has a shot. Uh, by the way, I, uh, Eugene McCarthy's daughter ended up uh, working in House administration uh, where I was. So it was kind of interesting talking to her about her father's campaigns. Um, but if you look back at, you know, the history of Vermont, it's interesting. New Hampshire, you know, the, the actually I call, you know, all the New England states, um, of course, Iowa's, you know, considered, you know, a, a great caucus state, but New Hampshire always is sort of the prize of where you, you go to get some things done. I think for Haley, her win in New Hampshire is to knock DeSantis out. I don't even think it's a matter of what she takes about against Trump as much as knocking DeSantis out. That's, that is her New Hampshire win. Oh, fascinating. Okay, so so she knocks out uh, DeSantis in New Hampshire, and then uh, she's toe-to-toe with Trump in the rest of the country. Is that the scenario you're thinking? I think that's where this boils down to, and if she's toe-to-toe with Trump, and if it starts to be a 50-50, now look, if it's, if it's 75-25 in, in states, you have Super Tuesday, but if all of a sudden it's one-on-one and Nikki Haley starts to take upwards of the, you know, 38, 45% mark, that's significant if it's one-on-one. Because if you look at, uh, for example, Trump took 53% of the vote. So he didn't take the rest of the vote. And that was spread out between the vague Ramaswamy, Nikki Haley, and, uh, you know, and DeSantis, basically. So if you look at that, the question is, the people who didn't vote in, you know, Trump's got loyalists that are loyal, as you know, down to the wire. But if you didn't vote for Trump in Iowa in the caucus, would you have voted just for Haley if she was the only person there? You know, would DeSantis' votes and Vivek Ramaswamy's votes, would they have went to to Haley or DeSantis, for that matter, if it was just Two people, you know, Trump and whoever else. So it's an interesting question, and I think if she knocks DeSantis out, and that's why she's not debating him, by the way, um, why why should she? She's ahead of him, and so she's kind of taking the Trump tactic. But interestingly enough, she turned it around on Trump and said, well, I'm not debating because Trump's not there. I've debated five times. Interesting tact. So I look at her, uh, Nikki Haley, as to what she can do more in, in New Hampshire than what she can do against Donald Trump. Bob, uh, I see that 
the Congress averted a government shutdown by passing a stopgap spending bill. It was championed by the new speaker, Mike Johnson. Uh, the vote was 314 to 108 in a in a deeply divided House, but there were uh, notable defections from the speaker's uh, coalition that he put together to pass this bill. And, and, you're, and you're talking about warning signs, political warning signs, uh, and you can maybe you can focus for us on Elise Stefanik uh, across Lake Champlain from us here in Vermont. What went down? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think that if you and you you pointed out the the right thing, you know, about who defected. Uh, I had sent some messages to a couple members of Congress that I know, you know, personally. And I, uh, the message I sent to them was that they saved the Republicans from themselves by voting for the stopgap measure was what I said to them. You know, the tongue-in-cheek message, but I think it's true. And if you look at the defections, here's the, the, the ones that I looked at, because I love to give the insides, you know, uh, for your, your show and the listeners. And if you look at Elise Stefanik, the reason that is big. She's the House Republican Conference chair, one of the big four, as they call them. The top four are called the big four. So she's part of the of the leader's team. She defected. Now, the other one in there that I, I, I looked at, and I, and I just I can't put my fingers in mind around this one, but your listeners are going to say, who? House Administration Chair Brian Stile of Wisconsin. Now, the reason... I looked at that one and about freaked out is because I used to be House Administration Chair. House Administration Chair is hand-selected by the Speaker. It only answers to the Speaker and can be removed in a second by the Speaker and can be appointed by the Speaker. Nobody else in the Republican Congress can have anything to do with their chairmanship. To have the House Chair of the Administration go against the Speaker is just unfathomable to me in any you know circumstance. So I looked at that, and then you had ch- uh, other chairman, Jim Jordan, you know, he's m- more well-known, but you had about, uh, I think, 11 chairmen. So combine that with Elise Stefanik, and it's, it's kind of a shocking maybe message towards the, uh, towards the speaker. It's fascinating. Okay. Well, Bob May, thank you, as always, for our weekly chat, and uh, we will see you next Friday. Uh, See you down the road. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. We're back, and we are joined for the next 15 minutes by Allison Novak of Seven Days, the website and the newspaper, and she's here to talk about a new class being offered at – Montpelier High School. Allison, I'm not going to spoil the the intro. Why don't you start? Sure. Um, So the class that is being offered is a new elective, and it's called Healthy Masculinity. Um, And it's for junior and senior male-identifying students or or boys. Um, And essentially, basically, it's a class. it's, It's kind of a hybrid of a support group for boys as well as almost like a gender studies class that allows boys um, to talk about, you know, the mixed messages they get about being a man, what it means to be a man, and how to kind of stand up for um, 
things like when they see a classmate talking in a way that's misogynistic or sexist, how to kind of stand up, um, and just to be kind of a well-adjusted, healthy male in today's society. And tell us about Joe Carroll, who's teaching that class. Sure. So Joe Carroll is both a philosophy and a Latin teacher in Montpelier High School, um, and he was the one who kind of had the idea to start this elective. He took a training last year with some other Vermont educators um, that was sponsored by a Washington, D.C.-based organization um, called um, MCSR. It used to be called Men Can Stop Rape. Um, and it is a organization that kind of teaches about how to, how to talk to young people about healthy masculinity. And he initially thought of maybe starting this as a club, but then realized, you know, he thought he'd have more buy-in if he taught it as a class that um, offered credit. And so he launched it this year, and it's been really successful. Uh, I'm wondering, Allison, whether this kind of class can run afoul of the, the sort of politics of that we that are, are taking over our education system around uh, sexual identity, gender, et cetera, et cetera. Does did Joe does Joe Carroll and and the students run into any of that, or has it been smooth sailing? So, I mean, he didn't express that he's run into any of that. That was the same thought that I had when I heard about this class, but. Um, I mean, I think the reality is that young men are struggling in many ways. Like when you look at some of the statistics around suicide rates, around even things like high school GPA and college um, attendance, men, young men are really lagging behind young women in some of these um, areas. And I don't think we have to view it as a binary. I think we can say, you know, that, you know, there are, Many different groups are struggling in different ways, whether it's the LGBTQ, um, you know, student population or, or young women. But that doesn't discount the fact that young men are also struggling in many ways and that, you know, it's important for schools to find ways to support to support them as well. Well, is, he is a, he is um, confronting the. A real situation, which is the, the way men have been raised in this country for so long to be providers. Uh, and then uh, we they emerge into a kind of, well, the term is toxic masculinity uh, mm -hmm. and uh, where they're joining uh, fraternities and they're in all male situations for, for generation after generation. And now. Uh, they're being told uh, to behave differently, and that's got to be something of a shock to a lot of kids, or at least, uh, you know, it sort of throws things up in the air. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the boys in this class, it, clearly it was a self-selected group because it's an elective. It's not a mandatory class. So this was a class that appealed to this group of 10 students that um, are taking, you know, the kind of pilot semester but um, I think one of the things that they said that I thought was really interesting is, you know, they understand what it means to be a toxic male. They understand what toxic masculinity is because that has been very clear in the last couple of years, kind of in conversation and the media. But I think what's less clear to many young men is like what it means to be the opposite, what it means to be a healthy kind of well-adjusted male. And so I think a lot of the discussion in that class revolves around 
you know, what, what it does mean, how do you kind of embrace masculinity and the kind of positive characteristics of masculinity, um, you know, without, without adopting some of the negative ones, I guess. You know, there, we all face that, that moment. And I see in, in the story, there's a young man named Colden Hollingsworth, a junior at Montpelier High School, where you're in a group and, and somebody makes a, a, a racial slur or an ethnic slur or says something completely inappropriate uh, and sexist or whatever. And there's that moment of truth when you have to decide whether you're going to let it go or whether you're going to say something. And that makes everybody feel awkward and uh, and it leads to all sorts of backlash or, or not. But he he articulated that and it sounds like he's going to feel better about trying to stand up and do the right thing and speak out. Yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, some of the boys in the class said that often, you know, when they're in a locker room, in a sports setting, in kind of a setting among other males, there are people that make comments that, you know, don't sit well with them, but like in the past feeling like they don't know how to, you know, say something without feeling like they're going to then be attacked or they're going to be, you know, labeled. Um, and so it sounds like that's, you know, they discuss these scenarios and how to, how to deal with these situations so that, um, they are able to stand up and speak out and, um, you know, tell people why the things they're saying um, are wrong. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 reassuring that uh, schools like Montpelier can be doing this kind of thing. Um, is Joe Carroll going to keep doing this class? He is. He's offering it next semester. And, you know, I think for him, like this was, I think he described it as, um, you know, the first kind of, can't remember the wording, but basically this is kind of his first swing at this class. And he's kind of adapting it and trying to figure out what works well and what doesn't work well. But he, you know, he seems really committed to keep on doing this work. He said, you know, as a teacher, this has been really cup filling for him or really just kind of, got him excited about teaching in a way that he hasn't in a, in a while, um, just being able to teach this kind of new material and, and teach kids in a different kind of way. Um, and, you know, it, it does seem like this is the first class of its kind in Vermont in terms of being offered as an elective, as a credit-bearing class. So um, my wonder is, you know, whether if other teachers see the success of Joe Carroll's class, if they might try to bring it to their high schools as well. What was it like, Allison, to sit in a high school classroom of boys uh, as a reporter? What's the, was it, was it different from your high school days? Yeah. So I have a 16 year old daughter and an almost 14 year old son myself. So I am used to being around teenagers, but um Sitting in a high school classroom among these, you know, 17 and 18 year old high school boys, I wasn't really sure what to expect and wasn't sure how they would react to my presence as the only female in the room. But I was really, really, um, I came away from that class just really heartened and just kind of feeling positively about teenagers and um, just these efforts in our state and the fact that a class like this exists. They were just really, really willing to speak candidly and honestly about their 
you start with thoughts and, you know, yeah, just really kind of raw, honest um, conversation, which really, to me, spoke to Joe Carroll's talent as an educator, that he is able to create an environment for these students where they feel that they can say these things and, you know, not have to worry about, you know, how others will perceive them. But yeah, it was really, it was really actually pretty sweet to see these boys kind of speak so vulnerably and honestly. And I think one of the things in in talking to others about this article is that, um, you know, that they said is that there's just not a lot of places for boys and men to kind of have these more raw, honest, emotional conversations and how, um, if we want to change things, it's important that we have places in our communities and society where boys and men can speak in these kind of um, more open, honest ways. Was was there anything, Allison, that especially surprised you or stood out after sitting in the classroom? Um, I mean, I think one of the things that I thought was just really touching to me was how the uh, several of the boys talked about how they just really like have trouble saying I love you to friends or expressing emotion to friends or hugging friends and like worrying about how they might be perceived and just this block they have even if they're raised in a household where um, you know that stuff has been very common they say like sometimes it feels like when you go out into the world like it's just not the way it is. And so several of them said, you know, like this class has made me say, I love you to my friends and hug my friends more. Um, And I just thought that was really sweet and and nice that that was one of the effects of this class. The class is called Healthy Masculinity. It's taught by Joe Carroll. There are 10 boys in the elective, and uh, that is the story in this week's Seven Days. You can read it at sevendaysvt.com or pick up a copy of the newspaper at your anywhere, really, in Vermont. Allison Novak wrote the story, and uh, she's been with us. And thank you, Allison, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. What a great story. Yeah, thank you for having me. A good positive education story. We need those sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we yes we do. Anything anything positive going on in a in a in a high school these days is uh, music to my ears and should be to everyone else's. Um, yeah. <laughs> take care. Allison Novak of Seven Days. Uh read it on the newsstand or get it online, seven dot com. You can you can uh You can read that story and so many others, including Paula Routley's weekly column, which, uh, you know, ever since they uh, gave up their uh, the the weekly political column written by uh, lots of people, uh, the famous Peter Frayn being one, uh, Paula's been writing her column and it's it's interesting every single week. I'm Kevin Ellis. We're going to come back and open the phones and take your calls and talk about the week's news. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We are back, and I believe we have a caller on the line. I missed the name, uh, but uh, Nina from Barry, you are on the line. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Um, I, about the class there at Montpelier High School that 
um, the reporter was just talking about. I read that article, and it gave me great hope for for guys, uh, for the society, um, that guys don't have to grow up to be violent, that um, maybe in the future there won't, you know, a third of all women get raped. Uh, the male cr- crime problem is, is huge. Um uh, and for guys themselves to think that they have to be violent to be okay and that they have to be hide their emotions and not talk to each other and stuff, you know, that's kind of a prison itself to not be able to talk about your emotions and, and to think that to be a real man you have to be violent, you have to put down women and everything. I think it's a great – instead of sort of accepting, oh, well, that's biological, men have to be violent – well, th- this is, a, I think, a part of the realization that 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 men can be real people and not just violent. So I think it's great for men and for women and the society a- a- as a whole. Hey, I wonder if you would stay on the line and talk to me more about this, just because I, you know, when when you're faced with the massive amount of marketing that is aimed at young men, whether it's Hollywood movies, television shows, uh, you know, you got to drink booze uh, to be a tough guy. Uh, you know, is there, is, is there any ability to, to fight back against that? Or is the marketing machine to, to tell young boys that they've got to be tough guys uh, too great to push back against? I think this is a, the beginning and you know the the phrase toxic masculinity is showing that there's a realization that this isn't it doesn't have to be this way um for men and for what male crime and male violence does to societies i i i think there's a beginning of not accepting that and um, I think the marketing will come along eventually, but yes, it's huge. I mean, just like, you know, it used to be that advertising had to show, uh, you know, you sold cars by having a cute blonde sitting on the, on the hood and other like women as sexual objects and stuff. Um, the the feminism has put a lot of that down uh and and certain types of public misogyny and marketing is no longer acceptable as it used to be so i i think there's a but but yes uh it's definitely um i remember ms magazine had a regular feature that that would show advertising that was super misogynist and, and under the, the the regular column called um, ads we'd rather not see. Uh, right. So I think there's hope. I think there's hope. This is the beginning. Well, uh, thank you for the call. It is, yeah, it's you were going to have to push against uh, decades and decades of uh, of doing it the wrong way and to try to do it in a better way. And you're right. This class is uh, class is a good thing. Thank you for your call. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. 
Our phones are open, 244-1777. I've got some stories that I want to review in the in in the uh, next half hour, um, beginning with a great one. I know our conversations on DEV with the editors, and we have uh, uh, Tim Calibro from the Herald of Randolph on, and I, I just came across a story, and bear with me here. I used to live in Orange County. We started in Chelsea, but we moved for 10 years to the little town of South Stratford. And in that town is a, is a, a country store uh, called Coburn's Store. And it is exactly what you would imagine. It is the most wonderful place. Uh, it is the heartbeat of the community. It's the town green. It's where you get all the gossip. It's where you get your groceries. Uh, it is also the, the run by Melvin and Sue Coburn. Now, Melvin Coburn is uh, exactly what you would expect. He is the town moderator and presides over the town meeting. Uh, I, at least I think. I remember he took a year off, maybe two, and was replaced by uh, my friend uh, Bob Bauer, uh, who lives there on 132. But I think Melvin uh, took it back over, but I can't remember. Anyway, Melvin and Sue have decided to retire. The store is for sale, and uh, a group of citizens have – because the kids uh, – I know uh, Christy Jamison, uh, Melvin and Sue's daughter, does not want to run the store full-time by herself. So a community group has now sprung up, and it's uh, it's – it's called uh, the Stratford Community Trust, and they are uh, having conversations in town to try to raise the money uh, to buy the store. And boy, uh, wouldn't that be wonderful? Um, it, it, that is just if, if, if the Coburns could be saved, uh, it is. I think they make money. Uh, they've got a bank there. Uh, there's a branch of Mascoma Bank there. Uh, the post office is there, and there's just so much going on there. And Boy, if they were to lose uh, that store, that would be a real blow uh, to the community. Uh, I want to take a call. Let's go to the phones. Uh, Mark in Middlesex, you are on the line. Welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. Yeah, thanks. I've been listening. And, you know, first thing that comes to mind, um, I grew up in the Vietnam era. And, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the war ended the year I graduated high school. But you had to draft back then. And, you know, you got a number depending on your birthday, you know, 365 days, you know. Um, I grew up in an area where there are military bases, Air Force, Army. And so it was part of the fabric, you know, uh, to be tough. I mean, you might get called up and and to be uh, huggy and, and, you know, it, it just makes you more vulnerable. You know, you really had to toughen up. We used to play tackle in the street. I mean, you know, uh, I had a low number. My number was 024, and a buddy's was 087, and they had the buddy system. We were we were ready to go. A couple of buddies got nailed over there. So, you know, to be to be as open as you need to be uh, to express emotions, you know, it, Really makes you vulnerable in a in a war situation. I think you know, or more so, or maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, but I think that's part of 
what's going on, you know, the past 40 years. Cape uh, Vietnam was just, you know, not long after World War II. Um, and the Korean War, of course, was right after. But So that's, you know, just an opinion of mine. I, I don't know if there's any truth to it, but... Mark, Mark, do you, how do you see uh, our culture changing from Vietnam to now? I mean, it seems to me I'm a pol- I'm a political junkie, so I see a lot through politics. Like, I think we're fighting. I think we're are having this same argument um, in the presidential election. I mean, Trump is just his whole persona is to be the tough guy, uh, yeah. right? I, I, you know, war is an admission of failure. Um, right. Diplomats, ambassadors, heads of state, um, and then from there you pick up the pieces. A lot of it's based on resources, acu- acquisition, to, well, in our case, it's to back up the value of our currency. Um, we've got to keep building a base of this pyramid scheme. Um you need a tangible to, you know, have value or pass it on to a currency. And um, these hot spots are are war uh, situations where greed is seeking ground. I mean, I might be going out in the weeds here, but in nature, everything's grounded. And when you make an aberration uh, with a currency that has no real backing, uh, behind it, I mean, the number now is what thirty-four trillion. They say there aren't enough resources on the planet to to pay that back. And nature's as vicious as she's gentle, but she's honest. And if there's a, an imbalance out there, she's gonna she's gonna balance it out. She doesn't care whether it's innocent people's blood on the ground or you know a righteous act. And I. I believe that's what's going on. I mean, if you want an analogy of, you know, electricity in a building, if you don't have that ground potential for that power to flow efficiently in that building, you're going to have hot spots where a loose connection is, and, you know, it's going to seep ground through that through that hot wire, and you're going to get a hot spot. You know, the outlets being local banks, your uh Electric panel, you know, be the Federal Reserve, and whatever you plug into it is, you know, your local people uh, partaking in the in the system. Um, it, it, it's 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 endemic in our economy to have this war footing. I mean, there's so much cash flow going through that system that it's like a big gorilla. We got to keep feeding, or, or it chews our head off. Um, so it, it's we really got to do some backtracking and and uh, do it a different way. And in this program in Montpelier, really is really um, a start to that. Happen. Well, I really I really appreciate your call. Uh, okay. And I, I and Thank thanks you. thanks for calling in. Uh, what an interesting conversation. Um, well, that gets us to our next break. Uh, we're gonna. The phones are open two four four one seven seven seven. It seems that this Montpelier High School class has uh, has uh, piqued people's interest. Uh, 
Dave in East Montpelier. Kevin. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I, uh, <clears throat> I was a, a Catholic chaplain at Cornell in 1960s when Phyllis Schlafly was trying to speak out against women who were feminists. And uh, it's now been almost 50, 60 years trying to even pass the Equal Rights Amendment, which I'm still petitioning to be passed in Congress. Uh, and so it's a long, long struggle. But I think men can actually work uh, against patriarchies, understanding what patriarchies are in business, in culture, in society, in church, in almost all of the institutions, that patriarchies are losing essentially the core of many of the, the qualities that males lack because of excluding or under uh, employing or underpaying women. And so it's a long struggle that men, I think, need to talk to other men about why the patriarchy is not partly in getting credit for things that are many, many times being done already by more women and more bright and intelligent women, theologians that are women, uh, revolutionaries that are women, and all of the rest of it. And so it's very important this next generation understand the role of women being able to penetrate and affect and change the patriarchiness of all other institutions. So I've given my little sermonette, which is what I'm good at. <clears throat> Dave, Dave, uh, you have, and I'm sorry to get your name wrong. I was looking at the last uh, gentleman that called. Sure. Can you talk more? Can you talk more about this? What's your experience with patriarchy? Um, start at the beginning. What is it? And how did we get here? Well, I grew up in the 1930s and 40s. And so I, I just assumed that that men would be at the head of CEOs, at the head of the institutions. The pastors would all be priests that were males, mostly white males. And so the, the, the 60s was when you began to, because of the assassination of Martin Luther King, understand more about slavery. All of the stuff about slavery that sometimes now parents in many places don't want their children taught about the real history of this country and its influence by slavery. But in a lot of ways, the suppression of women and the underemployment and the underappreciation of women has been a chronic part of everything from business to church to society. And so it's time for the men not to do anything condescending, to make room for, to try to diversify their patriarchies, but to say that patriarchies do not work, shall not work, and shall not be instituted as patriarchies. And so that's pretty much what my last 40, 50 years have been about. And, and we seem to, in some ways in our politics, uh, still be arguing about this. I mean, uh, we've got a, a, a gentleman running for uh, the Republican presidential nomination whose entire personality is about being the tough guy and, uh, and, and you know, his, I mean, his past is well, his sort of misogynistic past is, is well documented. Um, are well, we when still you get having right this down argument? Heaven, th this gender is not able to reproduce itself. Keep going. So in other words, men are aware very primarily of the fact that it's women that bring the next generation into existence. Yes, there can be sperm banks, but in a lot of ways, they don't need males as much as we need females to preserve the preservation of the people. 
And so I think there's always been a kind of gender jealousy um, by males that somehow or other they aren't as complete as they could be because they lack the reproductive ability that the other gender has. I got it. Okay. That's well. That's a subject for an entire show. And uh, yes, I understand. Maybe, maybe you could leave your. Uh, 50, maybe you could leave your. Years. We've got your phone number. We know where you live. We could call you and ask you to be a guest on the show. Cause that, I'd be happy a, to do that. That's a that's a thirty minute subject, uh, Dave. I'm the thank pastor you, emeritus of the old meeting house here in uh, East Montpelier. So you can always find me out in front of the post office except today when I've uh, been told by an actor not to go stand outside in the cold for an hour. We're the ones in front of the post office with all the peace signs that come from the 25 years ago or 20 years ago. You mean in front of the Montpelier post office? The Montpelier closed post office that Mr. Yeah, LaJoy well, doesn't have the money to open. Yeah, well, I always walk <laughs> by and, and give you a friendly wave because uh, you're standing next to my buddy John Snell. <laughs> yep, he's a great guy. All right. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks yeah. a lot, Kevin. Thanks for the show. Thanks for calling. Thanks for calling, Dave. Bye bye. Well, I was gonna do an I was gonna do an impassioned uh, description of Bernie Sanders' effort to uh, force a, the Senate to produce a report on what's happening in in, uh, in Israel and Gaza, uh, but we have run out of time because we had to take too many phone calls. But boy, that was isn't that fun. Uh, that's that art, that article in seven days that produced, uh, that produced, uh, a bunch of phone calls and we're obviously going to have to pursue that subject some more. Well, we have come to the end of another show. That is it for today. Uh, my thanks as always to our guests, Molly Gray, Bob Nay, Allison Novak, and all of you who called in, uh, be sure to follow all of these people, Molly Gray, Bob Nay, Allison Novak, be sure to follow them all online. Read their stuff, buy their stuff, patronize them so they'll be around in the future when we need them. Uh, Seven Days is a good example. VT Diggers another. I couldn't do, I couldn't do this show without uh, the resources and the journalism of VT Digger and Seven Days. Uh, remember to join me uh, on Wednesdays and Fridays. Uh, We'll be back Wednesday. We're going to devote Wednesday's show to climate change. Uh, I've got a couple of guests, but I'm still uh, populating the show. And uh, that'll be really interesting. Uh, We want to get deep down into all aspects of climate change and beyond the usual platitudes, which is what we try to do here. I'm always looking for guests to come on the show. You can hit me up on Twitter or email me at vtviewpoint at radioforbont.com. I'm also on Instagram from time to time, posting silly pictures of me behind the microphone. Our goal here is always to illuminate and inform and have some fun along the way. Remember, you can stream the show live or listen later as a podcast. Just go to WDEVradio.com anytime, anywhere, and you can check it out. You can find me at KevinKEllis.com. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter and podcast called Conflict of Interest. I have taken some time off from both of those over the holidays, but I'm going to get back to it very soon. Um, uh, our, our show is produced by me, engineered and made possible by Brent Curtis, Danny McGivigan, Lee Cattell, Greg Titus, and all the folks at WDEV. My thanks also, also to the team at KWMR Community Radio and 
Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for joining us. Wherever you are, join us right here again on Wednesday on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on the friendly pioneer, WDEV.